Hello, just a quick preliminary to our show. Bonin Sickle is taking August off in order to perform some much-needed maintenance. And to fill the gap, we'll be offering listeners a sampling of the short bonus episodes enjoyed by our patrons subscribing at the $4 monthly rate. We uh, hope you enjoy this peek into an alternate Bowden Sickle universe, and that if you do, you might consider joining us on Patreon to hear more of these. You can access the entire archive of episodes, about six hours of material, immediately upon signing up. We'll be back in September with regular episodes. Welcome to our 13th episode of Marvelous and Rare Antiquarian Circle. We offer this show exclusively to Patreon subscribers as a thank you for the support that makes Bowden Sickle possible. These short episodes consist exclusively of readings from rare books from the shelves of our library here. In this episode, we'll be reading again from the 1825 volume compiled by Sherwood Jones and Company entitled... The Terrific Register, or Record of Crimes, Judgments, Providences, and Calamities. Calamities. Hope you enjoy. So, our first one. God's Judgment on a Bishop. John Cameron... Bishop of Glasgow in Scotland was so given to covetousness, extortion, violence, and oppression, especially upon his own tenants and vassals, he would scarcely afford them bread to eat or clothes to cover their nakedness. But the night before Christmas Day, and in the middle of all his cruelties, as he lay in bed at his house in Lockwood, he heard a voice summoning him to appear before the tribunal of Christ and give an account of his actions. Being terrified with this notice and the pangs of guilty conscience, he called up his servants, commanding them to bring lights and stay in the room with him. He himself took a book in his hand and began to read, but the voice, being heard a second time, struck all the servants with horror. The same voice repeating the summons a third time, and with a louder and more dreadful accent, the bishop, after a lamentable and frightful groan, was found dead in his bed, with his tongue hanging out of his mouth, a dreadful spectacle to all beholders. This relation, made by the celebrated historian Buchanan, who records it as a remarkable example of God's judgment against the sin of oppression. Sounds appropriate. Our next, next one. Resuscitation. In the year 1728, Margaret Dixon was tried at Edinburgh for the murder of her child, supposed to have been born during the absence of her husband. After her condemnation, she behaved in the most penitent manner, acknowledged her infidelity, but constantly and steadily denied that she had murdered her child or even formed an idea of so horrible a deed. 
At the place of execution, her behavior was consistent with her former declaration, and she was hanged. After her execution, her body was cut down and delivered to her friends, who put it into a cart to be buried at her native place. But the weather being sultry, the persons who had the body in charge stopped to drink at a village about two miles from Edinburgh. While they were refreshing themselves, one of them perceived the lid of the coffin move, and uncovering it, the woman immediately sat up when most of the spectators ran off with every sign of trepidation. A person who was drinking in the house had recollection enough to bleed her. In about an hour, she was put to bed, and the next morning she was so far recovered as to be able to walk to her own house. By the Scottish law, which is partly funded on that of the Romans, a person against whom the judgment of the court has been executed can suffer more in future, but is thenceforth totally exculpated. And it is likely held that the marriage is dissolved by the execution of the convicted party. Mrs. Dixon, having thus been convicted and executed, the king's advocate could prosecute her no further, but he filed a bill in the High Court of Justice against the sheriff for omitting to fulfill the law. The husband of this restored convict married her publicly in a few days after she was hanged, and she lived about 30 years afterwards. Next one is uh, rather distasteful, I think. A worm found in the heart of a horse. On the 17th of March, 1586, Mr. Dorrington of Spaldwick in the county of Huntingdon, one of the gentlemen pensioners to Queen Elizabeth, had a horse that died suddenly, which being opened, there was found in the hole of the heart a strange kind of worm that lay in a round head in a call or skin of the likeness of a toad, which being taken out and spread was in shape not to be described. It was divided into many grains to the number of fifty, spread from the body like the branches of a tree, its length from snout to the end of the longest grain, seventeen inches, having four issues from which there dropped a red water. The body was of the color of a mackerel and three inches and a half round. It tried to crawl away, but was stabbed with a dagger, and its skin being stuffed was shown to Queen Elizabeth and most of the principal nobility of the kingdom. couple about lightning, which we've talked about before, but I think these are each different in their own way. Awful Visitation. A gentleman in Virginia, one day standing at his window and smoking his pipe, looking out on the country, it being a very calm, fine day, on a sudden, a violent clap of thunder bursted near him and struck him dead. And what was very remarkable was that he immediately became stiff so that he did not fall but remained leaning in the window with a pipe in his mouth and in the same posture he was in when he received the stroke by which means 
it was some time before it was discovered that he was dead, as the thunder did no damage to the room or window where he was. And uh, have the, the other one. A man and child burnt to ashes by lightning. In the reign of King James, in the year 1613, on the 26th of June, in a parish of Christchurch in Hampshire, one John Hithel, a carpenter, lying in bed with his young child, was, together with the child, burnt to death by a sudden flash of lightning. No fire appeared outwardly upon them, and yet they lay burning for the space of almost three days, till they were quite consumed to ashes. Now we have one about age and growth. Prematurity. On the 14th of March, 1729, was born Charles, the son of Richard Charlesworth, a carrier at Longnor in the county of Stafford. At his birth, he was under the common size, but he grew so amazingly fast that before he was four years old, he was nearly four feet high, and in strength, agility, and bulk, equal to a fine boy of ten years old. At five, he was four feet seven inches high, weighed 87 pounds, and could with ease carry a man of 14 stone weight, had hair on his body as a man, and every sign of puberty, and worked as a man at his father's business. This was the time of his full vigor, from whence he began to decrease in strength and bulk like a man in the decline of life, and at the age of seven years his strength was gone, his body was totally emaciated, his eyes were sunk, his head was palsied, and he died with all the signs of extreme old age as if the months he had lived had been years. I think I know the feeling. Uh, fatal Joy. When the Romans were overcome by Hannibal at the Battle of Trasimene, and the news of that calamity was brought to Rome, the anxious and solicitous multitude flocked to the gates men as well as women, to hear what had become of their friends. Various were the affections of inquirers, according as they were certified of the life or death of their relations. But both the sorrow and joy of the women exceeded that of the men. Here it was that one woman, meeting at the gate with her son in safety, whom she had given up for dead, died in his arms as she embraced him. Another, hearing, though falsely, that her son was slain, kept herself within doors in great sorrow and perplexity. When, unexpectedly, she saw him come in, this first sign of him made her joys swell up to that height as to overtop life itself, for she fell down dead. Okay. Curious Phenomenon. Dr. James St. John states that he has, sometimes, observed a phenomenon to take place during the putrefaction of human bodies, 
and which I cannot but think of great importance to be inquired into and known. This is the exhalation of a particular gas which is the most active and dreadful of all corrosive poisons, and produces most sudden and terrible effects upon a living creature. This I have more than once had an opportunity of remarking in the dissecting rooms of Paris, this fluid substance which is exhaled at certain times from animal bodies in putrefaction is infinitely more noxious than any fluid is yet discovered, for it not only is incapable of sustaining life in the absence of vital air, but is dreadfully deleterious and does not at all seem to abate of its corrosive property even in the presence of wholesome air, so that it is utterly dangerous to approach a body in this state of putrefaction. I have known a gentleman who by slightly touching the intestines of a human body, beginning to liberate this corrosive gas, was affected with a violent inflammation which, in a very short space of time, extended up almost the entirety of his arm, producing an extensive ulcer for several months and reduced him to a miserable state of emaciation. He then went to the south of France, but whether he died or escaped with the loss of his arm, I have not been able to learn. I have known a celebrated professor who was attacked with a violent inflammation of the mouth and nostrils occasioned by stooping for an instant over a body which was beginning to give forth this deleterious fluid. Oh, sounds like COVID. Okay. Uh, and our, yes. The Brazen Bull. Perilus, the Athenian, to ingratiate himself with the tyrant Phalaris, who delighted in inflicting strange kind of torments, presented that Sicilian murderer with a brazen bull, which, being heated by fire and criminals put into it, should roar like a bull without any perception of a human voice. But when he came to expect the reward for his invention, the tyrant commanded him to be put into it, to give the first trial of his own art, and, accordingly, he was roasted to death. Perilous, roasted in the bowl he made, gave the first test of his own cruel art. Oh, uh, fair enough, I guess. Let's see. Oh, uh, this one mentions uh, two characters, Pasquin and uh, Marsorio, which are actually statues in Rome, uh, so-called talking statues, as they were featured in plays and uh, broadsheets, presenting them uh, having various dialogues, which uh, satirized the politics and society of the day, uh, the day being like the, the 16th or 17th century. So now you know. Satire cruelly punished. Pope Sixtus Quintus was of a very mean extraction, and when he came to the pontificate, sent for his sister to Rome, who had been a laundress in Lamarck, and setting her up in great pomp and state. Whereupon Pasquin appears, stretching out his arm, holding a foul shirt in his hand, and Marsorio asking him why his shirt was so dirty. Pasquin answers, 
because my laundress has lately made a lady, and I have not yet provided myself with another. That's a laugh line, I think. This mightily enraged the Pope, and the more because he could not readily discover the author of the libel. But at length, publishing a proclamation with the reward of $10,000 to any person that should disclose the author, and if the person who did it would confess the fact, he should have the money and pardon for his life, the bait took. For, under this temptation, the offender himself went to the Pope and confessed he was the author. The Pope commanded his treasurer to pay him $10,000 in his sight, which the man, having received and inwardly applauding the success of his wit for thus enriching himself, the Pope said, You have been a villain, but I must be as good as my word. You have your money, and shall have a pardon for your life. But that shall not deprive me of the power to cut off your ears, your nose, and your right hand, and also to pull out your tongue and your eyes, which, accordingly, was executed with great severity. Well, that's what happens. Uh, a sort of feral success story. A child nurtured by a wolf. Some gentleman hunting in the forest of Ardan in Picardy slew a she-wolf that was followed by a child of about seven years of age, stark naked, of a strange complexion, and with fair curled hair. The child, seeing the wolf dead, ran fiercely at them, was beset and taken. The nails of his hands and feet bowed inward. He spake nothing, but uttered only an inarticulate sound. Having brought him to a neighboring house, they manacled his hands and feet, and by long fasting brought him to tameness, so that in seven months he was taught to speak. By circumstances of time and six fingers he had on one hand, he was found to be the child of a woman who, stealing wood, was pursued by officers, and in her fright left her child, then about nine months old, which, as is supposed, was carried away by the she-wolf and by her nurtured to the time of his being taken. He afterwards became a herdsman for seven years, during which time wolves never made any attempt upon his flock, though they were very numerous. This being observed by the neighboring villages, many people committed their cattle to his care, by which means he acquired a great store of money, and lived and died in comfort and affluence. So, with uh, that happy turn of events, we'll now switch from books to music to close out our show. Our selection from the library this time is an early one, recorded in 1900 by Thomas Edison's Edison Records, but actually something written in the previous century in 1895. It's sung by Dan W. Quinn, as you'll hear in the recorded introduction or attribution, uh, something that was always prefaced to uh, recorded performances in those days. Quinn's uh, robust tenor voice was particularly well-suited to the uh, finicky uh, recording technology at the turn of the century. He basically involved yelling into a horn with uh, the sound waves mechanically carved into tracks on a wax master, sort of like a gramophone in reverse. Before he became a recording artist, one of the first, uh, Quinn was, worked as an iron worker 
and at least by day and by night he would entertain at parties and after being discovered at one of these affairs he ended up becoming one of the most popular singers of those early years the phonograph eventually recording thousands of titles over a career that spans some 20 years he had a special knack for humorous songs and came to be known as the king of comic singers this uh, particular track is one of those comic numbers written uh, i believe at least uh, originally for singers performing in jewish vaudeville houses it's a bit of black comedy well suited to the halloween season and uh, this audience i hope so until next time i leave you with more work for the undertaker more work for the undertaker sung by mr dan w queen edison records